Maker's Mark Bourbon is aged to taste in Loretto, Kentucky. The Samuels family uses locally grown soft red winter wheat and sources water from a lake on the distillery's campus. Every Maker's Mark label is printed and die cut by hand on an antique press, and each bottle is hand dipped in their signature red wax. All the details matter when distilling quality bourbon. Since Maker's Mark sold its first case of bourbon to the Keeneland Racecourse in Lexington, they have perfected the craft of distilling American whiskey. For their dedication to making great bourbon and for their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. You and I don't garden, John T. We don't preserve or put up or lay by. We hunt farmer's markets and seek out heirloom ingredients. We shop. We provision. I don't like our chances as back to the landers. You're right, but I do respect the ethic of those back to the landers. Me too. Long before our generation came alive to agriculture, they led throngs back to the rural south. If they couldn't change the direction of the country in that moment, in the 1960s and 1970s, hippies could quit the military-industrial complex. It makes me think of that Lou Reed lyric, which I'm going to paraphrase, they raised a little liberal army in the woods. <laughs> an army to plant and harvest. And of course, in an era when homegrown music was vogue, they needed a band to entertain the troops. I'm John T. Edge. And I'm Melissa Hall. We're your host for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Producer Betsy Shepard travels to rural Tennessee, where, in the 1970s, an ag and music laboratory called The Farm created a cuisine and a community from scratch. And their house band played the psychedelic soundtrack. 70 miles southwest of Nashville lies Summertown, Tennessee, where a caravan of 200 San Francisco hippies decamped in 1971 to start a vegetarian commune called The Farm. Like thousands of other young people who were part of the Back to Land movement, farm members left city life for the country, where they could grow their own food and their own society. The farm grew soybeans and produced lots and lots of tofu. It published one of the earliest vegan cookbooks in the U.S. and opened the country's first soy-based restaurant. The farm also gave birth to a rock and roll band that wrote an epic soundtrack for their cause. In a quarter mile, continue straight onto Farm Road. Nearly 50 years later, the farm is still in operation. Only 200 residents remain from the 1,200 that once lived there. But nevertheless, the farm defied the odds. The hippie commune successfully transplanted to the rural south and somehow survived the generational changes and logistical problems that put an end to so many flower power experiments. What made this farm so resilient? That's what I'd come to find out. You've arrived. Next to the visitor center. When you get to the grain silos that are painted with flowers and mushrooms, it's the first house on the left. That's Douglas Stevenson, a longtime resident of the farm, 
who serves as its unofficial spokesman. On my way to meet him, I passed community gardens, permaculture orchards, and a rustic miniature town with a post office, a publishing house, a clinic, a soy dairy, a birthing house, and a grocery store. It was a pioneer village powered by solar panels and covered in psychedelic flowers and mushrooms. In the 1970s, the press dubbed residents the Technicolor Amish. I feel right at home with all the Priuses around here. I pulled up to Doug's two-story log cabin, one of the first structures farm residents built after they landed. A house like this would typically have 30 to 50 people living here. What was that like? It was um, exciting, <laughs> challenging. I always tell people, you remember back when you were young and there was the party house? Every house was the party house. <laughs> now, Doug and his wife live in the cabin with just two other residents. And Doug likes to joke that together they share a Netflix account, just like any other modern-day communal house. But back in the 70s, money was banned on the commune, and farm members shared everything using an allotment system. Residents turned to simple pleasures to offset the long workdays. Shared meals and music transformed those crowded quarters into a happening. Douglas was drawn to the scene in 1973, two years after its founding. He was among hundreds of young people who joined after seeing founder Stephen Gaskin speak on tour with the farm's resident rock group. Stephen and the farm band came up to Louisville and played a gig, and at intermission he did a slideshow about the farm. And we're just fascinated, it was like, let's go take a look. And as soon as we got through the gate, we said, this is where the revolution is happening. The revolution had its roots in San Francisco's musical counterculture. They called that period, you know, the psychedelic era, which it really was. Um, there was a lot of psychedelic drugs being taken, LSD in particular. It was like 1967, and the whole summer of love thing was happening, and I was really interested in being part of that. The love generation was starting to break loose and I decided that I wanted to go in that direction. That's Tom Dotzler, and before that, Susan and Walter Rabideau, who were all part of the original caravan from California. They met on the campus of San Francisco State, where Stephen Gaskin hosted an unofficial class every week that blended experimental drugs with experimental ideas. He was kind of like what was called an acid guru, and he was an excellent speaker. And uh, he spoke to me. We had questions about life and the universe and what's right and how should we live. And this guy had a lot to offer. He was nailing some of this stuff. Gaskin preached about the virtues of communalism, being one with nature, and psychedelics, which fueled the group's pastoral fantasies. As his following grew into the thousands, Gaskin began location scouting for his new hippie colony. The idea would be to 
go back to the land and really do what we had been talking about. But how can you do that in San Francisco? Uh, land in Oregon, Washington, California was prohibitively expensive. So we went back into the middle of the country and found land in southern middle Tennessee for $70 an acre. This idea of building community from scratch was just something that I wanted to do. So when we talked about that, I was excited. However, the South, gosh, do I really want to live in Tennessee? Susan was a New Yorker living in San Francisco. And she didn't know much about the South, except for news coverage of civil rights struggles and movies like Easy Rider, a cautionary tale about what happens to hippies on Southern backroads. Nevertheless, she signed up and traveled cross-country in a fleet of 60 buses. When the motorcade arrived, the hippies dug their heels in and got to work, cultivating a thousand acres of Tennessee dirt. It took so much just to do what we did. You know, we had to feed ourselves, we had to close ourselves, we had to house ourselves. We had to dig outhouses, um, we had to put up a water tower, we had to just figure out all those things that it takes to exist. They learned the lay of the land from their neighbors. You got a group of long-haired people suddenly, you know, amongst some very conservative Christian types. We had some issues here and there, but for the most part, we got along because we were good people. We helped our neighbors, and they helped us. It was a time when the children of the rural areas were leaving the family farms and moving to the cities for factory work. And so here we were, a bunch of city kids moving out to the country, hungry for what these folks had to teach. We cared about the stuff that they cared about. So we used to say that we were accepted into the South like a heart transplant. To integrate into the area, the farm started a series of town hall meetings with locals to discuss their differences and find common ground. In 1972, a cub reporter named Albert Gore, as in Vice President Al Gore, did a story for the Nashville newspaper, The Tennessean. He wrote, Overshadowing the disagreements, the real importance of the debates is that representatives of the two groups, who are mortal enemies in many parts of America, are learning to listen quietly to each other. Each side is also learning to respect and like each other. We live our lives, our lives all are one. We want all the world to know how it is. When we come back, we'll learn how the farm rooted itself in Tennessee. Producer Betsy Shepard reports on how tempe and guitar solos created the right conditions for the farm to grow. But first! <laughs> SFA's John Edgerton Prize recognizes individuals whose work in the American South addresses issues of justice through the lens of food. This year, we're pleased to partner with Nashville's Southern Festival of Books to celebrate the Edgerton Prize in John Edgerton's hometown. Join us on October 12th as we announce the 2019 honoree, and stay for a panel discussion at the festival, which features the honoree alongside guests Maurice Carlos Ruffin, author of We Cast a Shadow, and Amanda Little, who wrote The Fate of Food. 
If you have ideas about individuals deserving recognition for their work on justice issues, send SFA a nomination for next year. You may contact us through our website, southernfoodways.org. We hope to see you in Nashville at the Southern Festival of Books this fall. After giving me a tour of his house, Doug showed me his new crop of veggies. You can see in here we have some lettuce. Uh, we have different herbs. There's some oregano over there, parsley there. Oh, first asparagus. Been watching that every day. Kale that made it through the winter. Small kitchen gardens uh, and orchards are the only thing growing on the farm these days. But the commune started out as a working soybean farm. Every meal featured the legumes, and residents needed to expand their soy repertoire to eat them day in and day out. In 1972, the farm founded one of the country's first soy dairies. And so we started learning all the different things that you could do with soy. Uh, you know, if you soak the beans, uh, grind them, boil them, strain that pulp out, that makes soy milk. You add a curding agent like lemon juice, turns into curds and whey, which is basically soy cheese. And when you press that in the blocks, we call it tofu. The farm was one of the first places in America to commercially produce tempeh, an Indonesian dish in which fermented soybeans bind together in a patty. Farm kitchen engineers invented meat alternative recipes using the savory properties of nutritional yeast and the chewy texture of extra-firm tofu. And so we put out a cookbook in the early 70s called the New Farm Vegetarian Cookbook that just shared all of these recipes, how to make tofu, how to make masa, uh, how to make nutritional yeast sauce, and it's still my primary cookbook today. The cookbook shared recipes for tempeh burgers and ice bean, a soy milk ice cream product which the group invented and distributed through their business the Farm Food Company. It launched about a dozen satellite soy dairies around the U.S. and in 1971 opened the country's first soy restaurant in San Rafael, California, where it served dishes like soy stroganoff and meatless chili. The farm relied on soybeans as their source of protein and increasingly as their source of income. The commune's house band paid tribute to their cash crop with instrumental jam Hot Tofu Medley. Rock and roll provided a social outlet after a 12 to 14 hour workday. The farm band consisted of several musicians who honed their chops in San Francisco's psychedelic rock scene, where they hung out with Frank Zappa, The Grateful Dead, and Janis Joplin. Founding members Tom Dotzler, Walter Rabideau, Philip Schweitzer, and David Chalmers started jamming together as the farm band and used acoustic instruments to conjure Haight-Ashbury in Summertown. Now we're playing in the barn, and the whole farm is like coming out, and they are dancing and carrying on in wild hippie fashion. They would look fantastic, and really would egg us on. we get really pumped. When the farm got electricity in the mid-70s, the band wanted to plug in. But some residents opposed electric instruments as too modern. I wanted amplification. And a lot of people did not like that. And uh, 
I talked Stephen into it. I said, look, you can barely hear this guy on an acoustic guitar. The drums are going thumpity-thump. I said, really, what's wrong with it? It's the music of our generation. It's our people. It's us. We are electric motherfuckers. Rock songs and vegetarian recipes were just some of the fruits that grew from a seed of West Coast counterculture planted in Tennessee soil. Members turned their homegrown goods and do-it-yourself techniques into business ventures. They started dozens of food and wellness companies and a successful publishing house. By then, we had several books out, including The Big Dummy's Guide to CB Radio, which sold millions of copies all over the world. Um... We had a book on natural birth control. was in six languages. was all over the place. We had the vegetarian cookbook. It was very popular. So we were moving a lot of books. Residents kick-started the home birth movement and the study of midwifery. And they founded Pliny, an international aid and disaster relief organization that the press dubbed the Hippie Peace Corps. The farm developed its own research lab, where it built satellite dishes and invented gadgets like a heart monitor and a radiation detector called the Nuke Buster. Much of that innovation was in service to the group's mission to protect life and the environment. As the commune grew increasingly active in their political causes, the farm band went new wave. At about this time, Three Mile Island had happened. And we said, where's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission? letting them build that containment below specs. It's like they're not there, you know? We need another NRC. And everybody just, we all looked at each other, and it was one of those moments we said, we'll be the NRC. The farm band changed its name to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and traveled the country donning gas masks and their homemade nuke busters which they used to monitor nuclear energy sites and report violations. The band eventually worked with the Justice Department to establish new safety standards. We little guys changed something that was big industry. That felt pretty good. traveled to the U.S. and abroad advocating for nuclear regulation and even shared the stage with Bonnie Raitt at an anti-nuclear concert. As their profile rose, some farm residents resented the band for its special privileges. We became controversial because this band got to travel. This band got to record. The other bands played on the farm. 
it was not fair. <laughs> I, you know, I, I hate that it was not fair. Collective and individual needs of the community were increasingly coming into conflict. The band wasn't the cause as much as an example of members' growing desire for autonomy. Financial problems were also plaguing the commune. When we got to the end of the 70s, early 80s, we just realized we weren't bringing in enough money. And we knew if we didn't change, we were going to lose the whole thing. So in September of 1983, we changed from a communal economy to a collective economy where everyone was responsible for their own income. We eliminated basically all the rules except for when we agreed that we were all stewards of the land. During the changeover, members stripped Stephen Gaskin of his leadership role in favor of a more democratic system. But for many, the change had come too late. Nearly 80% of residents left, including Walter and Susan Rabideau, and Tom Dossler and his wife, Margaret. Tom recalls the last NRC show. While touring England, the band played a festival at Stonehenge. The monuments were out in front of us, and the sun was setting behind the monuments. And I thought, yeah, the sun's going down. And that was that. That was the end of that era. Ex-farm members had to start completely over and learn how to live in the outside world. And for many, that transition turned out to be harder than the one they'd had in moving to Tennessee. Because money was banned on the farm, defectors left penniless. And with limited work experience, they had to figure out how to support themselves and feed their families. Keep resettled in central Alabama, where I interviewed him. He recently retired from a career as an art restoration specialist and now spends his time woodworking, playing synthesizers, and building cars. I spoke to Walter and Susan in Northern California, where they maintain a close relationship with hundreds of ex-farm members who also moved to that area. Walter recently rebooted the farm band with some original members who live nearby. Others like Doug stayed on the farm to steer it in a new direction. Doug explained how the farm operates now while giving me a tour of the co-op store. When we were living in a communal economy, toilet paper and sugar and flour and oil uh, would be distributed here and it would be uh, given out so much per person per week. Uh, and then after the changeover in 1983, it became a small business and it's a, basically a combination between Whole Foods and a convenient food store. So you can get uh, your nuts, your tofu, your nutritional yeast, uh, but you can also get M&Ms and Snickers and Dr. Pepper. <laughs> the farm is much different than when it started, but it's still around almost 50 years later, 
because of that adaptability. It adapted to a new environment and changed with the times. The farm band evolved into the NRC, and the farm community grew from a soybean operation into an incubator of ideas and sustainable practices. We said right on the front of one of our buses, out to save the world. Now we're just trying to change things a little bit. We're a little more incognito now. We're still hippies. But, uh, you know, it's not about how you look. It's about how you live. continues to do aid and disaster relief around the world and runs SE International, a nuclear radiation detection company that assisted Japan during the Fukushima disaster. It hosts summits on community farming and environmental sustainability. And the farm's midwifery center has provided natural birthing services to thousands of families and counting. Once a year, the farm invites former members to come back to Summertown. The reunion is filled with lots of food and music and memories about what everyone on the farm accomplished together. And what a truly psychedelic experience it all had been. Special thanks to the farm band slash Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which provided all the music for this story. This episode of Gravy was reported and produced by Betsy Shepard. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Laster serves as our publisher. If you like listening to Gravy Podcast, we think you'd love reading SFA's quarterly journal, Gravy. SFA members get gravy in their mailbox four times a year. Visit southernfoodways.org to read back issues of Gravy and to become a member. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear.